I'm Ashley Lorenz with Microsoft Research. I've spent the last 20 years working in AI and machine learning, but I've never felt more fortunate to work in the field than at this moment. The development of increasingly powerful, large-scale AI models like GPT-4 is accelerating the advancement of AI. These models and the systems they power are exhibiting surprising new abilities like reasoning, problem-solving, and translation across languages and domains. In this podcast series, I'm sharing conversations with fellow researchers about the latest developments in large AI models, the work we're doing to understand their capabilities and limitations, and ultimately, how innovations like these can have the greatest benefit for humanity. Welcome to AI Frontiers. Today, I'll speak with Shiram Rajamani, Managing Director of Microsoft Research India. For nearly 20 years, this lab has focused on interdisciplinary research, blending theory and practice, and computer science with social science. Our researchers in India have made many contributions to advanced AI in areas like causal reasoning. But the latest wave of powerful AI models has made a profound impact on all the lab's work, including their approach to creating technologies for underserved communities. All right, so Sriram, let's dive right in. I think it's fairly obvious for me to say at this point that ChatGPT and generative AI more broadly is a worldwide phenomenon. But what's so striking to me about this is the way that so many people around the world can pick up the technology and use it in their context, in their own way. I was on a panel discussion a few weeks ago where I saw a comedian discover in real time that GPT-4 could write jokes that are actually funny. And shortly after that, I spoke to a student who was using ChatGPT to write an application to obtain a grazing permit for cattle. Um, you know, the work of your lab is situated in its own unique societal context. So what I really want to know and start with here today is like, what's the buzz been like for you and your part of the world around this new wave of AI? Yeah, first of all, Ashley, you know, thank you for um, having this conversation with me. Um, uh, you're absolutely right that our lab is situated in a very unique context on um, how this technology is going to play out uh, in uh, you know this part of the world, certainly. And you might remember, actually, a, a sort of a, a mic drop moment that happened for Satya when he visited uh, India earlier this year in January. Um, so one of our researchers, Pratish Kumar, um, he is also co-founder of our partner organization called AI for Bharat. Uh, he works also with the government on uh, a project called Bashini, which uh, the government endeavors to bring conversational AI to the many Indian languages uh, that are spoken uh, in, in, in India. And what Pratyush did was he connected uh, some of the AI for Bharat translation models, language translation models, uh, together with one of the GPT models to build uh, a bot for a farmer to engage and ask questions about the government's agricultural programs. So the farmer could speak in their own language, you know, it could be Hindi. And uh, uh, what the AI for Bharat models would do is to convert uh, the Hindi speech into text and then translate it into English. And then uh, he taught, uh, you know, either fine-tuned or did retrieval augmented generation. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't quite remember which one, one of those, where he made a GPT model 
customized to understand the agricultural program of the government. And he chained it together with this um, uh, uh, speech recognition and translation model. And the farmer could just now talk to the system, the AI system in Hindi and ask, you know, is the, are they eligible for their benefits uh, and many details. And the, and the model had a sensible conversation with him. And Satya was just really amazed by that. And he, calls that, he called that as the mic drop moment of his trip in India, uh, which I think is indicative of the speed at which this disruption is uh, impacting very positively uh, in various parts of the world, including the Indian subcontinent. You referenced the many Indian languages uh, written and spoken. Can you just uh, bring bring that to life for us? How, how many how many languages are we talking about? So I think there are at least uh, you know thirty or forty you know main, mainstream languages. I mean the the government recognizes twenty two. We they we call them as IN twenty two, but I I would think that there are about thirty plus uh, languages that are spoken very very broadly. Each of them with uh, you know several. Uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of speakers. And then there's a long tail of maybe a hundred more languages um, which are spoken by people uh, with uh, in, in smaller population counts. Um, the, the real, there are also very low resource languages like Gondi and Idu Mishmi, which are just spoken by maybe just only a million speakers or even under a million speakers who probably, do, those languages probably don't have enough data resources. So India is an amazing testbed because of this huge diversity and distribution of uh, languages in terms of the number of speakers, the amount of av- available data. And, and uh, many of these state languages have unique you know, socio-cultural nuances. So I think in that sense, uh, India is a really good testbed for you know, how conversational AI uh, can inclusively impact the entire world. And, and what's the, you, you mentioned tail languages. And, and so maybe, maybe we mean they're uh, low-resource languages like, like you also mentioned. What's the gap like between what languages AI is accessible in today versus the full extent of all those languages that you just described, even just for, you know, for the Indian subcontinent? So what, is, what we are seeing is that um, with IN22, uh, the, the top languages, uh, if you look at successive uh, versions of the GPD models, for example, the performance is definitely improving. So if you just go from you know, GPT-2 to GPT-3 to 3.5 to 4, right, you can sort of see that um, these models are increasingly getting capable. But still, there is a gap between what these models are able to do and what custom models are able to do, particularly if you go towards language, languages in which there is not enough training data. So, uh, so people in our lab uh, you know, are doing very systematic work in this area. Um, there is a, a benchmarking work that my colleagues are doing called MEGA, where there is systematic benchmark being done on various tasks, on a matrix that consists of you know, uh, tasks on one axis and languages on another axis, um, to just systematically and empirically study you know, what these models are able to do. And also, we are able to uh, build models to predict how much more data is needed in each of these languages in order for... Uh, the performance to be comparable to, say, languages like English, right? What, what is the gap and how much data is needed? The other thing is that 
uh, it turns out that these models um, they they learn also from related languages. So if you want to improve the performance of uh, a language, it turns out there are other languages in the world and in India that have similar characteristic, you know, syntactic and semantic characteristics to the language that we are thinking about. So we can also sort of recommend, uh, you know, what distribution of data we should collect so that all the languages improve. So that's the kind of work that we are doing. That's yeah, one of the most fascinating uh, parts of, of all of this, how diversity in the training data set improves, uh, you know, across the board, like even the addition of code, for example, in addition to language. And now we're even seeing even other modalities. And, you know, the the wave of AI and the, the unprecedented capabilities we're seeing has significant implications for just about all of computing research. Um, in fact, those of us in and around the field um, are undergoing now a process that I call, you know, reimagining computing research. And, you know, that's a somewhat artful way to put it. But beyond the technical journey, there's an emotional journey happening across the research community and many other communities as well. So what has that journey been like for you and the folks at the India Lab? Yeah, yeah that, that's a good question, Ashley. Uh, you know, if we, our work in the lab uh, spans uh, four areas. Uh, you know, we do uh, work in theory and algorithms, uh, we do work in AI and machine learning. We do systems work. And we also have an area called technology and empowerment. Uh, it's about uh, making sure that technology benefits people. And so far, our conversation has been about the last area. But all these four areas have been affected in a big way using this disruption. Maybe I'll just say a few more things about the empowerment area first and then move on to the other ones. Uh, if you look at our work uh, in, in the empowerment area, Ashley, right, this lab has had a track record of doing work that makes technology inclusive, not just from an academic perspective, but by also deploying the work. We have spun off uh, startups, many startups that have taken projects in the lab and scaled them to the community. Uh, uh, examples are Digital Green, which is an agricultural extension, 99Dots, which is a tuberculosis medication adherence system. Uh, Karya is a, is a platform for dignified digital labor to enable um, underprivileged uh, users, uh, rural uh, users, to contribute uh, data and get paid for it. Uh, uh, you know, HAMS is a system that we have built to improve road safety. You know, we've built a system called Blendnet uh, that enables rural connectivity. And almost all of these, we have spun them off into startups that are uh, that have been funded by you know, venture capitalists, impact investors. And, uh, and we have a vibrant community of these partners that are taking the work from the lab and uh, deploying them in the community. So the, the second thing that is actually happening in this area is that, as you may have heard, India is playing a pivotal role uh, in digital public infrastructure. Uh, advances like the Aadhaar biometric uh, authentication system, UPI, which is a payment system, they are pervasively deployed in India uh, and they reach you know, several hundreds of millions of people. And in the case of Aadhaar, more than a billion people uh, and so on. And uh, the world is taking note. Uh, India is now head of the G20 and many countries now want to 
be inspired by India and build such digital public infrastructure in their own countries, right? And uh, so, so, so what, what you saw is the mic drop moment, right? That it, isn't, it, it actually has been coming for a long time. There has been a lot of groundwork that has been laid by our lab, by our partners, uh, you know, such as AF or Bharat, the people that work on digital public goods, to get the technical infrastructure and our know-how to a stage where we can really build technology that benefits people, right? Um, so, so going forward, uh, in addition to these two major advancements, which is the, the building of the partner and uh, alumni ecosystem, um, the digital public good infrastructure, I think AI is going to be a, a third and extremely important pillar uh, that uh, is going to enable um, uh, citizen-scale digital services uh, to reach people uh, in, who may, may, not, may only have spoken literacy uh, and who might speak in their own native languages and uh, uh, public services can be accessible to them. So you mentioned AI for Bharat and I'd love for you to, to say a bit more about that organization and how researchers are coming together with collaborators across sectors to make some of these technology ideas real. Yeah, so Air for Bharat is a center in uh, IIT Madras, which is an academic institution. Uh, it, it has multiple stakeholders, uh, 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 not just Microsoft Research, but uh, our uh, 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 search technology center in India also collaborates with them. Uh, Nandan Nilakani is a prominent uh, technologist and philanthropist. Uh, he is behind uh, a lot of India's digital public infrastructure. He also you know, funds that center uh, significantly through his philanthropic efforts. And there are a lot of academics uh, that have come together. And what the center does is data collection. Uh, I, I talked about the diversity of um, uh, you know, Indian languages. They collect various kinds of uh, data. They also look at various applications, like in the judicial system. In the Indian judicial system, they are thinking about you know, how to transcribe you know, judgments, um, uh, enabling various kinds of technological applications in that context, and really actually thinking about how uh, these kinds of AI advances can uh, help ride on top of digital public goods. So that's actually the context in which they are working on. Digital public goods. Can you, can you describe that? What, what do we mean in this context by digital public good? So what we mean is uh, if you look at uh, 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 Indian digital public infrastructure, right? There is, as, as I mentioned, there is Aadhaar, which is the identity system that is now enrolled in one, more than 1.3 billion Indians. Uh, there is actually a payment infrastructure called UPI. Uh, there are new things that are coming up, um, like something that's that's called Beckon. There's something called ONDC that is poised to revolutionize how e-commerce is done. So these are all, uh, you know, sort of protocols that uh, through private-public partnership, right, government together with think tanks have developed that are now deployed in a big way in India. And they are now pervasively impacting education, health, and uh, agriculture, and uh, every uh, area of public life is now being impacted by these digital public infrastructures. And uh, there is a huge potential for AI and AI-enabled systems to ride on top of this digital public infrastructure to really reach people. You know, you talked about some of the, um, you know, the, the infrastructure considerations. 
And and so what what are the challenges in bringing you know digital technologies to uh, you know to to the Indian context? And and you mentioned the the G twenty and and other countries that are following the patterns. What what are the, what are some of the common challenges there? So I mean there are many many challenges. Uh, one of them is uh, lack of access. Uh, uh, you know, though India has made a huge strides in lifting people out of poverty, uh, people out there don't have the same access to technology that you and I have. Uh, another challenge is awareness. Uh, people just don't know, you know, how technology can help them, right? Uh, you know, people hearing this podcast know about, you know, LinkedIn to get jobs. They know about, you know, Netflix or other streaming services to get entertainment. But there are many people out there that don't even know that these things exist, right? So awareness is another um, uh, issue. Um, affordability is another issue. Uh, so many, many of the projects that I mentioned, what they do is actually they start not with the technology. They start with the users and their context, and their um, uh, situation and what they're trying to do and then map back and technology is just only one of the pieces uh, that these systems, that all of these systems that I mentioned, right? Technology is just only one component. There's a socio-technical piece that deals with uh, exactly these kinds of access and awareness and these kinds of issues. And we're, we're kind of taking a, a walk right now through the work of the lab and there are some other areas that you, you want to get into. But I want to come back to this. Maybe this is a good segue into the emotional journey part of the question I asked a few min- minutes ago. Um, as you get into some of the, uh, you know, the, the deep technical work of the lab, what were some of the first impressions of the new technologies, and what, what were some of the first things that you know you and your colleagues there and our, our colleagues, you know, felt, um, you know, in, in observing these new capabilities? So uh, I, I think Peter mentioned this very eloquently as uh, stages of grief. And, uh, and me and my colleagues, I think, went through the same thing. I mean, we, uh, there was, uh, we went from um, uh, you know, disbelief saying, oh, wow, this is just amazing. I can't believe this is happening to sort of understanding uh, what this technology can do and over time understanding what its limitations are and what the opportunities are um, as a scientist and technologist um, and engineering organization to really push this forward and make use of it. Uh, so that's, I think, the stages that we went through. Maybe I can be a little bit more specific. As I mentioned, the three other areas we work are on uh, uh, theory and algorithms in machine learning and in systems. And I can sort of see, say how my colleagues um, are, are evolving you know, their own uh, technical and research agendas uh, in, the, in the right of this disruption. If you take our work in theory, uh, this lab has had a track record of you know, cracking long-standing open problems. For example, problems like the Cadison-Singer conjecture that was open for many years, uh, many decades, was actually solved by uh, people from the lab. Uh, our lab has uh, incredible experts in arithmetic and circuit complexity. They came so close to resolving the VP versus VNP conjecture, which is the arithmetic analog of the P versus NP problem. So we have incredible people that are working on, working on theoretical computer science, and a lot of them are now shifting their attention to understanding these large language models, right? Instead of understanding just arithmetic circuits, you know, people like you know Neeraj Kayal and Ankit Garg are now thinking about mathematically what does it take to understand transformers? Um, how do we understand? Uh, uh, how might we evolve uh, these models or training data so that uh, these models improve uh, even further? 
um, uh, in performance, uh, in their capabilities, and so on. So that's actually a journey that the theory people are going through, uh, you know, bringing their brain power to bear uh, on understanding these models foundationally. And because as you know, currently our, our understanding of these uh, foundation models is largely empir empirical. We don't have a deep scientific understanding of them. So that's the opportunity that, uh, that the theoreticians see in this space. If you look at our machine learning work, uh, you know, that actually is going through a huge disruption. I remember now one of the things that we do uh, in this lab is work on causal ML. Uh, Amit Sharma, uh, together with Emery Kitchman and other colleagues uh, working on causal machine learning. And I, I, I heard a very wonderful podcast that you hosted them uh, some time ago. Uh, you know, maybe you can say a little bit about what, what you heard from them and then I can pick up back and then connect that with the rest of the lab. Sure. Well, it's, um, you know, I think the, the common knowledge, there, there's, so many, there's so many things about machine learning over the last few decades that have become kind of common knowledge and conventional wisdom. And one of those things is that, um, you know, correlation is not causation and that, you know, it deep, you know, learned models don't, you know, generally don't do causal reasoning. Um, and so we, you know, we've had very, uh, specialized tools created to, to do the kind of causal reasoning that Amit and Emery do. And it was interesting. I asked them some of the same questions I'm asking you now, you know, about the journey and the, the initial skepticism. Uh, but it was been really interesting to see how they're moving forward. They recently published a, a position paper on archive where they conducted some pretty compelling experiments. Um, in some cases, so, showing something like, you know, causal reasoning, uh, you know, being, being exhibited, or, or at least I'll say convincing performance on causal reasoning tasks. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, 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 you know, I, I would say that their journey was that initially um, they realized that, I mean, of course, they built specialized causal reasoning tools like Do Why, uh, which they've been building for many years. And one of the things they realized was that, oh, some of the things that Do Why uh, can do with sophisticated causal reasoning these large language models were just able to do out of the box. And that was sort of stunning for them, right? And so the question then becomes, you know, does uh, uh, do does specific vertical research and causal reasoning is even needed, right? So that's actually the shock and the awe and the emotional journey that these people went through. But actually after the initial, you know, shock faded, they realized that uh, there is actually better together story that is emerging in the sense that they, you know, once you understand the details, what they realized was that uh, natural language uh, contains a lot of causal information, right? If you just look at the literature, the literature has many things like, you know, A causes B. Um, if, they, if there is, if there is uh, you know, hot weather, then ice cream sales go up. You know, this information is present in the literature. Uh, so if you look at tools like DoY, what they do is that in order to provide causal machine learning, they need assumptions from the user on what the causal model is. They need assumptions about what the causal graph is, what is the user's assumptions about which variables depend on which variables, right? And then, and, and, and what, they realize, what they realize is that models like GPT-4 can now provide this information. Previously, only humans were able to provide this information. And, but in addition to that, right, tools like DoI are still needed to confirm or refute these assumptions statistically using data. So this division of labor between 
getting assumptions from either a human or from a large language model, and then using the mathematics of Do-Y to confirm or refute the assumptions now is emerging as a real advance in the way we do causal reasoning, right? So I think that's actually what I heard in your podcast. And that's indicative of actually what the rest of my colleagues are going through, you know, moving from first thinking about, oh, you know, GPT-4 is like a threat, you know, in the sense that I, it really uh, obviates uh, my research area to understand, oh, no, no, it's really a friend. It, it really helps me um, uh, do, you know, some of the things that required primarily humor intervention. And if I combine GPT, GPT or these large language models, together with uh, you know domain-specific research, we can actually go after bigger problems that we didn't even dare going after before. Mm. Um, let, let me ask you. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot here in a moment. But did you have you covered you know the areas of of research in the lab that you wanted to walk through? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's more. You know, thank you for reminding me. So even in the machine learning area, right, there is another uh, work uh, direction that we have called extreme classification, which is about building very, very classifiers with large number of labels, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of labels. And, you know, these people are also benefiting from uh, large language encoders. Uh, you know, they have come up with clever ways of uh, taking these language encoders that are built using self-supervised learning together with supervised signals from things like, uh, you know, clicks, and uh, logs from search engines and so on to improve performance of um, uh, uh, classifiers. Uh, another uh, work that we've been doing is called uh, DISKNN or uh, Approximate Nearest Neighbor Search. Uh, you know, as you know, actually in this era of deep learning, uh, retrieval works by converting everything in the world. You know, be it a document, be it an image, uh, you know, be it a audio or video file, everything into an embedding. And relevance, relevant retrieval is done by uh, nearest neighbor search in a geometric space. And our lab has been doing, I mean, we have probably the most scalable uh, uh, vector index uh, that has been built. And, uh, and, and, and these people are you know, positively impacted by uh, these um, uh, large language models because, uh, you know, as you know, retrieval augmented generation is one of the most common design patterns in making these... Um, uh, large language models work for applications. And so their work is becoming increasingly relevant and they are being placed huge demands uh, on you know, pushing the scale and the functionality of the nearest neighbor retrieval API to do things like, oh, can I actually add predicates? Can I add streaming queries and so on? So they are just getting um, uh, stretched uh, with more demand you know, for their work. Um, you know, if you look at our systems work, which is the last area that I want to cover, you know, we have uh, uh, we have been doing work on uh, using GPUs and managing uh, GPU resources uh, to, for training as well as inference. And this area is also going through a lot of disruption. You know, prior to these large language models, these people were looking at relatively you know smaller models. You know, maybe not uh, you know hundreds of billions uh, to trillions of parameters, but but uh, you know maybe hundreds of millions and so on. And they invented several techniques to share a GPU cluster among training jobs. Um, the disruption that they had was, oh, these models are so large that nobody is actually sharing clusters for them. But it turned out that some of the techniques that they invented um, uh, to deal with, you know, migration of jobs and so on, are now used for failure recovery in very, very large models. So it turns out that 
you know, at, at, at the beginning, it seems like, oh, my work is not relevant anymore. But once you get into the details, you find that there are actually still uh, many important problems. And the insights you have from solving problems for smaller models can now carry over to the larger ones. And, and uh, to one other area I would say is the area of, you know, programming. Uh, uh, you know, I myself work in this area. We have been doing combining uh, machine learning together with program analysis to build a new generation of programming tools. And the disruption that I personally faced was that the custom models that I was building were no longer relevant. I mean, they, they aren't even needed. Um, and so that was a disruption. But actually what me and my colleagues went through was that, okay, that is true, uh, but we can now go after problems that we didn't dare to go before. Like, for example, you know, we can now see that, uh, you know, Copilot and so on let you... Uh, give recommendations in the context of the particular file that you're editing. But can we now edit an entire repository, which might contain, you know, millions of files with hundreds of millions of code? Can I just say, let's take, for example, the whole of the Xbox code base or the Windows code base. And in the whole code base, I want to do this refactoring. Or I want to you know, migrate this package from, migrate this code base from using, you know, this serialization package to that serialization package. Can we just do that, right? I think we wouldn't even dare going after such a problem you know, two years ago. But now with large language models, we are thinking, uh, can we do that? And large language models cannot do this right now because, you know, whatever context size you have, you can't have a hundred million line code as a context to a large language model. And so this requires, you know, combining program analysis with these techniques. Uh, that's a, as an example. Uh, and actually, furthermore, there are, you know, many things that we are doing uh, that are, are not quite affected by large language models. You know, for example, actually, you, you know about the highway project where we are thinking about technology to make hybrid work work better. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are doing work on using GPUs and accelerators for, you know, database systems and so on. And we do networking work. We do uh, low Earth orbit satellite work for connectivity and so on. And those we are doubling down, uh, you know, though they have nothing to do with large language models because those are problems that are important. Uh, so I think, you know, to summarize, I would say that, you know, most of us um, have gone through a journey from, you know, shock and awe to sort of uh, some amount of insecurity saying, is my work even relevant? To sort of understanding, oh, these things are really uh, aids for us. You know, these are not threats for us. These are really aids. And we can use them to solve problems that we didn't even dream of before. That's the journey I think we, my colleagues have gone through. I want to I step into two of the concepts that you just laid out. Um, maybe just to get into some of the intuitions as to what problem is being solved and how... Um, generative AI is sort of changing the way that those those problems are solved. So the first one is extreme classification. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a, a, a flagship use of generative AI and foundation models is is Bing Chat. And so I think this idea of, of internet search as a as a you know as a, a home for for these new technologies is is in the popular imagination now. And I know that extreme classification seeks to solve some challenges related to search and information retrieval. But what is the challenge problem there? What, you know, how is extreme classification addressing that? And how is that you know, being done differently now? So as I mentioned, uh, you know, where, where the, the, my colleagues have already made a lot of progress is in combining um, language encoders uh, with the extreme classifiers to do retrieval, 
so there are these models called NLR. Like, for example, there's a tooling NLR model, uh, which is a large language model, which does representation, right? It actually represents, um, you know, keywords, keyword phrases, documents, and so on into encodings, uh, you know, based on, you know, self-supervised learning. But it is a very important problem to combine uh, the knowledge that these large language models have uh, you know, from understanding uh, text, we have to combine that with supervised signals that we have from click logs. Because, you know, we have search engine click logs. We know, uh, you know, for example, when somebody searches for this information and we show uh, these results, what users click on, that's supervised signals. And we have that in huge amounts. And what our researchers have done is they have figured out how to combine these encoders together with the supervised signals from click logs in order to improve both the quality and cost of retrieval, right? And, and actually, as you said, uh, retrieval is an extremely important part of experiences like Bing Chat, and retrieval augmented generation is what prevents hallucination and grounds uh, these large language models with appropriate information retrieved um, and presented uh, so that uh, the, the relevant results are grounded without hallucination. Right now, the new challenge that this team is now facing is so okay, that's so far so good as far as retrieval is concerned, right? But can we do similar things with generation? Right? Can we now combine these NLG models, which are these generative models, together with supervised signals, so that even generation can actually be guided um, in this manner, improved in both performance uh, as well as accuracy? And that is an example of a challenging problem that the team is going after. Now let's do the same thing with uh, programming. And maybe I'm going to engage you on a, a slightly higher level of abstraction than the deep work you're doing. Uh, and then we can, we, can, we can get back down into the work. But one of the things, one of, one, of the, you know, one of the popular ideas about these new foundation models is that you can, you, you know, effectively through interacting with them, you're sort of programming them in natural language. How does that concept sit with you, <laughs> as someone who, uh, you know, is, is an expert in programming languages? What do you What do you think What do you think when someone says, you know, sort of programming the, you know, the system in natural language? Yeah, so I I find it fascinating, and um, uh, you know, for one, uh, uh, you know, can we an important topic in programming language research has been always that can we get end users or you know people who are non-programmers to program i think that has been a long standing open problem and if you look at the programming language community right the programming language community has been able to solve it only in, na in narrow domains uh, you know for example excel has flash fill uh, you know where through examples you know people can program excel macros and so on but those are not as general as these kinds of, uh, you know, LLM-based uh, models, right? And and it is, uh, for the whole community, not just me, right? It was stunning when uh, users can just uh, describe in natural language what program they want to write, and these models emit, you know, Python or Java or C-sharp code. Um, but there is a gap between that capability and having programmers just program in natural language, right? Like, you know, the obvious one is, you know, I can sort of say, you know, write me Python code to do this or that, and it can generate Python code, and I can run it. And if that works, then that's a happy path. But if it doesn't work, what am I supposed to do if I don't know Python? What am I supposed to do, right? I still have to now break that abstraction boundary of natural language and go down into Python and debug Python. So one of the opportunities that I see is that can we build 
representations that are also in natural language, but sort of, that sort of describe you know, what the application the user is trying to build and enable non-programmers, could be lawyers, could be accountants, could be doctors, to engage with the system purely in natural language. And the system should talk back to you saying, oh, so far, this is what I have understood. This is the kind of program that I'm writing without the user having to break that natural language abstraction boundary and, going and having to go and understand Python, right? I think this is a huge opportunity in programming languages to see whether can we build, like for example, right, actually, right, I, I'm a programmer and one of the things I love about programming is that I can write code, I can run it, see what it produces and if I don't like the results, I can go change the code and rerun it and that's sort of the, you know, coding, evaluating, uh, the, we call it the REPL loop, right? So that's, that's what a programmer faces, right? Can we now provide that to natural language programmers in the sense that I, I want to say, here's the program I want to write. And now I want to say, oh, I want to run this program with this input. And if it doesn't work, I want to say, oh, this is something I don't like. I want to change this code this way, right? So can I now provide that kind of experience to natural language programming? I think that's a huge opportunity if you manage to pull that off. Mm. And now let's uh, let's maybe return to some of the uh, more societally oriented, you know, topics that uh, that that you were talking about um, at the top of the the episode, in the context of, of of programming, because being able to program in natural language, I think, really changes, you know, who can use the technologies, who can develop technologies, what a program, uh, what a software development team can actually be, and who who that who that kind of a team can consist of. So, can you? Paint a picture. You know how, what 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 kind of opportunities for for you know software development does this open up when you can sort of program in natural languages? Assuming we can make the AI compatible with your language, whatever that happens to be. Yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities. You know, maybe I'll 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 describe a few things that we're already doing. Uh, my my colleagues are working on a project called Vellum which is now a co-pilot assistant for societal scale uh, applications. And one application they are going after is education. Um, so, uh, you know, India, like many other countries, has made a lot of educational resources available. Uh, to teachers in government schools and so on. And so that if a teacher wants to make a lesson plan, uh, you know, there is enough information available for them to search, find out uh, many videos that their colleagues have created uh, from different parts of the country and put them together um, to create a lesson plan for their class, right? But uh, that is a very laborious process. I mean, you have an information overload when you deal with it. So my colleagues are thinking about, can we now think about in some sense, the teacher as a programmer and have the teacher talk to a uh, Vellum system saying, hey, and here is my lesson plan. Here is what I'm trying to put together uh, in terms of uh, what I want to teach. And I, I now want the AI system to collect the relevant resources that are relevant to you know, my lesson plan and uh, get them in my language, uh, in the language that my students uh, speak. You know, how do I do that, right? And all of the things that I mentioned, right, you have to now index uh, all of the existing information using vector indices. You have to now retrieval augmented generation to get the correct thing. You have to now deal with uh, the trunk and tail languages because this teacher might be speaking in, in, in a language that is not English, right? And, 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 and the teacher might get a response that they don't like. 
right? And how do they now? But they are not a programmer. How are they going to deal with it, right? So that's actually an example. If we if we pull this off, right, and a teacher in rural India is able to access this information in their own language and create a lesson plan which contains the best resources throughout the country, right? We would have really achieved something. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a hugely compelling vision. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing where you and, you know, our colleagues in uh, Microsoft Research India Lab and MSR more broadly, you know, take all these different directions. So I really appreciate you uh, spending this time with me today. Thank you, Ashley. And I was very happy that I could share the work that my colleagues are doing here and, uh, uh, and bringing this to your audience. Thank you so much.